Good evening and welcome everyone to our Wednesday night devotional time. However you're accessing this, we are glad that you've joined us and appreciate you taking the time to tune in and learn a little bit about God's Word and some things that we're going to focus on tonight that talks about, uh, that address who we are as Christians. So we're going to be studying tonight in Romans chapter 8. And if you would, get your Bible out and turn to that place. We'll be moving to some other places, but Romans 8 is where uh, we'll be centering the thoughts tonight. So over the last couple of weeks, uh, we have talked about in this time about how God uses word pictures to help us understand what's happened to us in Christ, help us to understand Him, and help us to understand ourselves. So we talked about a couple of weeks ago the idea that we are branches. And we talked about last week how we are temples. So if you're a branch, you need to be connected to the vine, you need to bear fruit, and you need to be pruned. And if you are a temple, then you're a place where God dwells, and you're a place that's holy, and you're a place for sacrifices and worship. But what I want to read tonight is another picture that is drawn from this text that will help us see ourselves in yet another new light. Romans 8 and verse 12 says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So our text here introduces another way of thinking about ourselves, and it's there in verse 16. It says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So that's the picture that I want us to think of, not just that we think of ourselves as children, but that we think of ourselves as heirs. You are an heir. And I want you to think with me about what that might imply for you and me in our walk with God. So being an heir or having an inheritance describes the fact that we stand to receive something and that there is a certainty that we will receive those blessings. If we are heirs, then we are certain at some point in time to receive something, in this case, from God. So God not only wants us to know that there are some things we stand to receive and to know some about what those things are, and that's what we'll talk about tonight, but he also wants us to learn to live as if we are heirs of all the good things he's going to give us. So I want you to think with me uh, about this for a few minutes tonight. First, if you are an heir, that means that you are a child of God. So the logic of this text that, as I said, is going to form the basis of our study tonight is that we've been set free from the law to walk in the Spirit, and the Spirit who dwells in us gives us hope that we'll be raised from the dead. That's really verses 9, 10, and 11. So he says in verse 12, we are debtors not to the flesh, but to the Spirit. The Spirit is the one from whom we hope to receive all the blessings and the inheritance that we'll have. And the Spirit is also bearing witness with our own spirit, not that we are slaves, but instead that we are children. So verse 15, he says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So we have been adopted as sons. And son is the picture of both a relationship, that we are intimately related to the Father, but it's also a status 
idea that we have a certain place within the home and family. And someday, as sons, we stand to inherit what was the Father's, what will now be ours. So the idea that we are a child of God or a son of God in this text is an important idea. It's used in different places in different ways in the Bible. For example, there is this broad sense, and this is used this way in the Bible some, that all people are children of God. Everybody is his creation, so everybody is related to him in a unique way. Every human, that is. And so, for example, in Jesus' lineage, in Luke's account, it says that Adam is the son of God. Or Paul will say on the Areopagus, the passage that we talked about last week when we talked about temples, Paul will say that we are also his offspring. All of us are the offspring or children of God, whether we're Jew or Gentile, whether we're Christian or non-Christian, we are all God's children. But when we use that term this way tonight, and really most of the times that it's used in the New Testament, there's a specialized sense in which it is describing the people of God and it speaks to intimacy. And that's what I want us to see because there are certain emotions that are engendered by that and also a certain status that's engendered by that picture of us as children of God. Let's go over to Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians 3, he's going to talk about, again, this connection between sonship and the inheritance. Now here, the inheritance has a specific meaning. He's talking in this text, Galatians 3, about how we stand to inherit the promise made to Abraham. But I want you to see the way he uses sonship and inheritance here. Galatians 3 and verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or f- and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So we're not under guardians. He has talked about how the law was our guardian in this text. Now we are free. Now we can be sons, and we are all sons of God, verse 26, by faith. That's independent of what nationality we're from or what our socioeconomic status is, slave or free, whether we're male or female, we can all have that status of being a child of God. Not only that, but verse 29 says that we're also children of Abraham, Abraham's offspring, because we have faith like his. He's the father of those who believe. But especially in verse 29, we are heirs according to the promise. That promise that was made to Abraham. He mentions it back in verse 8, that the blessing of all nations he's going to bring through Abraham's descendant, in this text, his seed, the Messiah. So you and I stand to inherit because you and I are children of God. In chapter 4 and verse 6, he says, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. What I want you to see here is that God is not interested in just a business transaction with us. He doesn't just want to be our patron. The best way to understand God, the best way that Jesus explains God and that God explains himself is as father. And if that is the case, then the best way to understand ourselves is as children. That we matter to him like children matter to their father that he blesses and provides for us like a father does for his children, that he cares for us and disciplines us like a father does for his children, and also 
What these texts are stressing is that he lays out blessings for our inheritance. So let's think about that then. The second thing I want to say is, if you are an heir, not only are you a child of God, but you will receive blessings. And when I'm talking about blessings here in these texts that we're going to study, they're not talking about blessings in the current sense, but an inheritance that someday we'll receive. Just like an inheritance, it doesn't happen immediately, but upon the death of the father, that's when the inheritance takes place. In the same way, we stand to inherit, but not yet. Someday we will inherit. Let's go back to Romans 8, our our text for tonight. In Romans 8 and verse 17, Paul writes, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. So inheritance implies that at a future time, blessings will come. We will receive something. And here, Paul uses the word glory. He uses it in verse 17, that we'll be glorified with him. And then again in verse 18, the glory that is to be revealed to us. And I want us to think about what is Paul referring to? What is he thinking of when he talks about what we will inherit, the blessings that we'll receive? Well, first of all, in this text, he talks about how our bodies are going to be resurrected and changed. The hope of a body that is made immortal. That's what he's referring to in in Romans 8. That's what glory here means. We know that because in verse 23, he spells it out. Romans 8, 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Adoption as sons, he says, is redemption of our bodies. The time when This body is made perfect, redeemed, no longer subject to the deterioration and death that reign on the earth now. That is our inheritance. We don't have it yet. We are still in this body that is subject to all of those things. But someday the body will be redeemed and the body will be resurrected and the body will be changed. This is 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 50. Paul writes, I tell you this, brothers, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Sleep here is a picture of death. But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed." Now, I want you to notice first in the beginning of that verse that Paul talks about inheriting the kingdom of God and the perishable inheriting the imperishable. He says you cannot inherit as you are. Specifically, he he talks about flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. I don't think that's just a reference to humans cannot. I believe it's a reference to the fact that we're mortal because in the parallel phrase, he says, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. The problem we have is that we are in a body that is subject to death. And so in some way, he doesn't really explain the reasoning, but in some way, our mortal body is not fit for us to fully inherit the kingdom of God. It could be that the kingdom itself is eternal, and therefore we need a body that will live forever in order to continue eternally and always be its citizens. But whatever the reasoning, This is what we await. We await a body that will be resurrected and changed. 
This is important. We need to stress and remember the fact that God has promised the resurrection of the body. Especially when we watch our brothers and sisters as we age, as we cope with pain, as we learn to live with discomfort. And sometimes as we are in continual regular pain that is not about persecution, it's not about the world against us, it's just our own bodies beginning to deteriorate. As our minds grow dull where they once were sharp, or as we see sharp minds that are trapped in weak bodies, or bodies that hold up for a while while the mind slowly deteriorates. We need to remember this when we go to the graveside of our brothers and sisters, of our family members, as we notice these things happening in ourselves, that we can say, this is not the end. We stand to inherit something far greater than the tragic interruption of life that we see here. That death is not just a part of life, it is an interruption to life, one that God says he will deal with ultimately. We will not all die, Paul says, but we will all be changed. So you are an heir of a new eternal body. You'll receive blessings, not just a new body, but eternal life. Eternal life is very often used in connection with the idea of inheritance in Scripture. That is, when we talk about eternal life, we mean life that is eternal in duration, but also we are talking about being with God and knowing God through that eternity. And you are an heir of eternal life. You will inherit life forever with God. This is the reason for the odd wording that often happens in Scripture. In fact, I don't know if we are even, those of us who grew up reading this kind of text and this kind of wording, if we're even realizing just how odd it is and how odd it sounds to talk about inheriting eternal life. Uh, this is in Luke 18, 18. A ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we don't really bat an eye at that. But really, it is an odd idea that there is a forward-looking, someday I'm going to inherit life or death, and I want to inherit life. How do I do it? What do I do to inherit it? In Matthew 19, Jesus uses the same wording. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So Jesus uses that same terminology and says, this is what you'll receive. And especially in this text, he talks about we'll receive a hundredfold. In Mark's account, I believe it is, he says, in this age, meaning that there's a hundredfold. There are blessings that come now, but the, the inheritance, the ultimate thing at the end comes eternal life. You will inherit eternal life. Uh, and then Titus 3, 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. As I read up on this, it was a very interesting discussion. Some scholars think that the, this language of inheriting life began with Israel's preparation to go into Canaan, where they are given a land by God that they receive and then it's also divided up and passed down by inheritance. So they use that same terminology to describe the life that they would have in the land. You can see some similarities there where there would be a new kind of life when they got into Canaan. No more of the privations of the desert and the difficulties of 
having to strike the tent every day and move forward. No more worrying about food, no more wandering. Instead, it's a land of milk and honey, houses instead of tents, God's protection at all times. What I want us to see is that we stand to inherit a new kind of life. We have a land promised to us. We have the hope of living with God forever in eternity, to know him fully, to see him as he is, to live in his presence. And that is a rich promise to say that is what my life is headed toward. I don't just want a new body so I can live, but I also want to be where God is. And God has promised you will be where I am. Jesus has promised where I am you will be also. That eternal life will be ours. That's what you stand to inherit. And you see, when we begin to think about where we're heading and what we'll receive, it gives us an optimism, an excitement, and a hope. And that's the intention of this picture of being heirs. You'll receive blessings, not just a body, not just eternal life, but the kingdom. We talked a lot about the kingdom last year, and I'm not going to rehash all of that tonight. But one of the things that's so difficult about the idea of the kingdom is that there's a sense in which the kingdom is here with us and we are in the kingdom, but there's also a sense in which we're not yet in the kingdom. The kingdom in its fullness or its consummation has not yet come. And that's important because very often scripture speaks of the kingdom as something we inherit. We stand to inherit. This is James 2 and verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Notice he has promised it, but to those who love him, he has not given it yet. Now, in a sense, true, he has given us the kingdom. But in another sense, there are parts of that promise that are yet to be fulfilled. But I think the most powerful way that's shown is by the many passages that talk about how there are things we can do that will lead to us not inheriting the kingdom. Galatians 5.21, after he lists the works of the flesh, he says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians 5.5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Ephesians 5.5. So here's a way we can live that leads to us having no inheritance in the kingdom. And he talks about after a long list of things that we should not do, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So all of those are future tense about someday there will be a reckoning for these behaviors, but the reckoning will be the loss of the inheritance of the kingdom. So the warning is particularly for those who are already in the kingdom, but who also want to hold on to the promise of receiving the kingdom in its fullness. And so he warns them, be careful how you live before that consummation of the kingdom. Well, what does that all mean? It means that there are further dimensions of what God's going to do, how God's going to bring his reign to completion, to fulfillment, to consummation. And I don't know all the answers to everything that he is going to do in that. But what I do know is that God wants to give us an awesome place in that. He wants to give us the kingdom. We stand to inherit it. Sometimes he hints at new responsibilities in the kingdom. Like judgment. Do you not know that we'll judge angels? 
the apostles will be on 12 thrones judging the tribes of Israel. Sometimes he gives hints about further authority, like in the parable of the minas or the parable of the talents, that you've shown yourself a good and faithful servant, and so you've been faithful over a little, I will put you over much. I'm sure he'll sort all of that out, what exactly that means, and he won't ask me for my input. The point here is, there are things that will not always be the way they are now. The way we feel right now, where we're stuck between the tension of what things should be and what they are, what we know is right, and then what we see, what we hope for and what we live with. And that tension will not always exist because someday God is going to give us the kingdom. We will receive our inheritance. There are other elements of our inheritance that the scripture describes. I er mentioned earlier Abraham's promise, the promise that in your seed all nations of the earth will be blessed. Jesus says, the meek shall inherit the earth. I'm not sure I understand all the dimensions of that, but I know it's a promise about a future inheritance, and I know it's good. Salvation, we're told, we will inherit. But the broad strokes are here. God is going to remake everything, and we are the ones who stand to receive those blessings. God's going to fix it all, and we will be the blessed ones. We are heirs so the third thing I want to say then, if you're a child of God and you'll receive blessings, then the idea of being an heir means that you should live like an heir. Let's go back to Romans 8. And I just want to ask the question for the last couple of minutes here. What, what does living like an heir involve? Well, Romans 8 and verse 17 says, If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So living like an heir, according to this text, will involve suffering. So we need to learn to embrace suffering. Christians don't back away from suffering, because as he says in verse 17, we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. We are only following the path that Jesus trod before us. It is one of the stubborn truths of Christianity that Jesus' crucifixion is not portrayed just as a historical fact, but that Jesus himself and Jesus' followers continually prod us to follow Jesus, take up your cross, that Christ himself suffered for us, leaving an example that we should follow in his steps, Peter says. So if we say, I don't want anything negative to ever happen, I don't ever want to have to go through anything challenging, then what we are saying is, I'm unwilling to suffer even if after the suffering I will receive the inheritance. If we say we don't ever want anything negative or difficult to happen to us, we will struggle with the perspective Paul gives us here, that the sufferings of the present moment are not worth comparing to the glory that we'll receive. Now, I don't know precisely what form uh, the suffering is going to take. I know some of the forms it's taken in the past. I know in the past it's taken the form of government persecution. I know in the past it has involved social, personal opposition from others. It always 
involves self-denial and self-evaluation and change, always. And it always involves continuing to serve when we are discouraged and hurting and tired. But here is what I do know. I don't know exactly how suffering is going to show up in your life. But standing to inherit something empowers us to live through it. That's his point. In fact, look again at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Whatever we are going through and whatever suffering we have to endure for a little while, eternity will make it all worth it. What we stand to inherit, a resurrected body that is now eternal, eternal life with the Lord. All of these things will be worth it. We sing sometimes, just one glimpse of Him in glory will the toils of life repay. That's Paul's perspective. We need that perspective. If you live like an heir, you embrace suffering because you know suffering doesn't take away what you stand to inherit. On the other side of the suffering is something that will make it all worthwhile. We should live like heirs by embracing waiting. Everything here is in the future tense. He talks about in verse 18 the glory that is to be revealed in us. Down in verse 23 of Romans 8, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So he says, as we wait, we groan. We're frustrated. We're upset. We want things to change. We're looking forward to that, but we don't see it yet. But he says, if we have the right kind of hope, verse 25, we wait for it with patience. We will inherit, but we don't know when. So we have to learn the skill of waiting well. We need to learn how to balance. That we don't want to take the promises for granted, but we also don't want to forget about them. We want to keep hope alive, but we don't want to neglect the present either. We want to live in between present and future. We don't want to get over-eager about what we stand to inherit, but we also don't want to get tired and worn down as we wait. Here's the assurance that we have. And this is a beautiful passage. I encourage you to take some more time with it if you have the opportunity after we're done with our study. 1 Peter 1 and verse 3. He says, According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, obviously, we're here because he talks about an inheritance. But I want you to notice all the different terms he uses that are specifically chosen to communicate security. He talks about an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, It is kept in heaven for you. Not kept on earth where things can happen to it. It is kept in heaven for you. And you are being guarded through faith. All of these are intended to reassure us. Time doesn't change God's promises. Things that happen to us and the way people treat us don't change God's promises. Paul says in Romans 8, I am persuaded that there's nothing, death nor life or principalities or powers, there's nothing that can happen to you, no power in this world that can separate you from the love of Christ. 
Because of that, and because God has assured us of these promises, we have something to hold on to. God hasn't forgotten. God hasn't gotten lazy. He will preserve our inheritance and guard us so that we always have that hope. That's what it's like to live as an heir, is to say, you know what? Because I trust God, I'm going to embrace this time where I don't yet have what I know I will. And the third thing, to live like an heir, is that we have to be concerned about sin. I want you to go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's the last passage that we'll look at tonight. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 8. Now in this text, um, it is a transition from where Paul has been talking about how the Corinthians were taking one another to court. They didn't have anybody in the church who could settle their disputes. And he's warning them, things are getting dangerous for you because you're beginning to live like unrighteous people. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 8, he says, But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That word unrighteous is the same word as doing wrong back in verse 8. He is saying you are becoming the kind of people who won't inherit the kingdom. Do not be deceived, verse 9. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There is a warning here. You can be, even as a Christian, someone who begins to be so comfortable with sin that sin begins to define you again. He says in verse 11, such were some of you, but you, you should be changed. And in the same way, it's possible for you and me to forget the change that occurred when we became Christians. So what we're saying here is we need to be careful lest we lose our inheritance by disdaining it. That we have to continually look beyond what we experience in the moment, the frustration we feel with our brothers and sisters, or the allure of some temptation, and look beyond that to what we stand to inherit. Something far, far bigger is in the balance. We're studying different books of the Bible uh, with each of our kids. And uh, Noah right now is reading in Genesis. And last night he covered uh, the story of Jacob and Esau and the birthright, the, the pot of stew incident. And we talked about, you know, what Jacob and Esau did. And, and Noah really zeroed in on how Jacob was deceitful and kind of took advantage of his brother because he was so hungry. But I pointed out that Esau made a mistake too because Esau was so hungry at that moment that he didn't care anymore about his birthright. You see, the hunger was right now and the birthright was much later. In fact, he even says, you know, what good is a birthright to me if I'm dead? Christians need to be careful of Esau-style thinking. Because like Esau, we have a birthright. We have something that we stand to inherit someday. But it's something that's so great that no pot of stew could ever be worth it. Nothing in the moment could ever be worth giving that up for. You are an heir. So don't rebel and don't walk away and don't live in such a way that you forfeit what is yours. It is yours and God has given it to you. You stand to inherit it. So live like an heir and be careful that you don't trade something so great for some pot of stew 
that you'll regret for eternity. So what we're seeing is that God uses the metaphor of inheritance, of being an heir, to discuss the certainty of future blessings. He wants to bless us. And I want to encourage us to look to the future with confidence, to know that we are children of God, to know that we will receive these blessings, and to know that we have an obligation now to live as if that's true. So Almighty God has told us who we are and who we will be. Let's live like we'll inherit what God says we will. Let's pray about that, and we'll be done for our time tonight. Oh God, our Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity we've had to think through your word and the great promises, the great and precious promises that you've given to us. Father, we are humbled because we realize we don't deserve these great blessings. We don't deserve to be your children. We don't deserve to have any good thing from you. And yet you shower us with blessings and assurances and comfort and your presence. And Father, we are so thankful. Help us, Father, to see how much you've given us. Father, I pray that you'll help us with the perspective that we need as we deal with the regular situations and temptations of life, the everyday, as our emotions and our impulses and our bodies press us to do things, some of them right and some wrong. It's easy for us to get caught up in the here and now. Help us to remember, Father, what really matters about our lives and the ultimate destiny that you have laid up for us. We thank you for this, Father, but we also need your help because so easily we get short-sighted. And I pray that you'll help us to have the vision that you've given us tonight. Father, we pray for one another. We pray for this local church. We pray for our leaders, both the leaders of our nation, the leaders of our church. We pray, Father, that you'll bless them with wisdom and help them as they make decisions that affect so many, that they'll do what is best for everyone. And Father, I pray that you'll help us to have a spirit of wanting to uh, show kindness and love to one another, to be thoughtful not only for our own interests, but also for the interests of others. Continue to watch over and bless your people, Father. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.